uh, Carlos, here we are, uh, live from the studio uh, at FinTech Collective above Union Square in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. It's a nice fall day, and the topic today is emerging markets and FinTech Collective. When we started the firm in 2012, we always talked about this as being a global opportunity set. The operating businesses that we had been in had always executed in countries all around the world. And when you look at the intersection of finance and technology in the markets and broader socio-demographic uh, trends, it's hard not to very quickly see that fintech is going to play out not as this single epicenter of Silicon Valley, but a globally distributed network of connected ecosystems. Mm-hmm. So from the beginning, we organized the world between developed markets and developing markets. We saw a set of secular trends uh, shaping the opportunity set, um, but manifesting themselves in different ways in, in those two markets. When we looked at emerging markets, uh, at the time you saw some emerging banking players, some emerging payments companies. When we looked at the opportunity initially, we saw that um, there was no basis for determining someone's credit ability. And we looked at credit as being a foundational layer of social and mo- social and economic progress and mobility. And so our investment in Migo really reflected that focus, enabling um, a company to establish a uh, near real-time assessment of an individual's credit, even though they had no uh, formalized historic um, credit rating, for example. So when you fast forward and look at the portfolio today, we have 10 companies operating in emerging markets. About 60% of those companies are based in Latin America, 40% based in Africa. These are companies like Flutterwave and uh, Lagos that is helping with the shift from cash to card and other forms of digital payments. Mm -hmm. Uh, Companies like Migo, which I mentioned. Um, In uh, Latin America, we have positions in Runa, in Mexico, um, Oyster, Fundadora, in the digital banking space. Mm-hmm. Um, we're building a real-time payments uh, infrastructure business in Colombia called Minca. Mm-hmm. Um, we're attacking the software and data in the small business and enterprise space, uh, a position in Brazil called Contabilice, um, and another digital credit business in Brazil called Rebel. Yeah. Um, so we've got... At this point, um, a pretty interesting portfolio coming together across some of these themes. So let's take some time today and and unpack a little bit about that. You joined the firm in the summer of 2019 as part of our summer program. And before we dig into how we think about emerging markets, I'd love for uh, you to just introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your background, Mm -hmm. uh, and then we'll unpack how we think further about emerging markets. Perfect. So I think there's two things about my background that especially are well aligned with the firm. One is the fact that I had the opportunity to grow up in, I lived, I've lived in 10 different cities in five different countries. So I think that is very in line with our global approach. Um, and yeah, and that involved eight years of my life living in Latin America between Brazil, Argentina, and Colombia afterwards. So yeah, I mean, began my career as an FX options trader at JP Morgan in New York. And then soon after, I actually moved to Medellin in Colombia to help build and scale a tech social enterprise called Suyo, which in fact was tackling the issue of property informality, uh, which is a way in which millions, millions of people in all developing markets are left out of the formal financial system. It's a way that they cannot leverage their property, which is their main asset, 
in order to actually enter the financial system and leverage a lot of things that we see in the work that we do day to day. Um, so I think that this theme of financial inclusion um, and financial access has been a prevalent one in in my life, in my university um, career when I was studying at at UPenn. I was re- I helped uh, establish uh, a microfinance fund that was targeting micro entrepreneurs in West Philadelphia. So that again, I think, kind of was my early foray into the the entrepreneur world, if you will. So so yeah, and then began my internship here in 2019, as you mentioned, between my two years of of the MBA at Wharton, and very happy to be here. Originally born in Spain. Correct, yes. Um, (laughs) And so before we get too much further, of course, I have to ask uh, when it's World Cup time uh, and Spain and Brazil are playing, uh, what jersey are you wearing? Who do you support? So I'm wearing the Spanish jersey, uh, but I do hold a Brazilian passport, as you alluded to. (laughs) So it's always a good backup to have, or at least (laughs) it was before the last 10 years when both countries haven't been doing that well. In the World Cup, but I have hopes. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, um, I can attest having uh, carrying an American passport that uh, we we would aspire to uh, be supporting uh, teams as strong as uh, Spain or Brazil. Yeah. So, um, good. Well, well done. Good on you. Um, so, why don't we kick off and and get into this a little bit further, and maybe you can. Last, when, when you joined uh, the team, we started to put um, some more specificity and develop how we were thinking about emerging markets. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit more about how that comes together in an emerging cities thesis. But maybe you can start with um, uh, walking through sort of how we think about emerging markets from some of the macro trends that, that we see. Yeah, perfect. So I, I think first it's it's important to highlight the fact that we, you know, our our approach is focused on four on four urban nuclei, uh, three of which are in Latin America, right? Mexico City, Bogota, and Sao Paulo in Brazil, uh, and Lagos in Nigeria, as you as you alluded to. So I think I say that because it is a city based approach for many of the reasons that we're not going to go into. Uh, one is the high degree of urbanization that we're seeing in emerging markets, right? I mean, if we consider in the, by 2030, so in 10 years, 600 cities in the world are expected to account for about 60% of global GDP, um, and 100 of them are going to account for over half of that. So a lot of them are going to be in emerging markets. Like you look forward to 2050, Kinshasa and Lagos are expected to be in the five biggest cities in the world, arguably. Um, so that is a very, very different, and then you have major cities in India as well, for example, in that category. So that's a very major, a major shift in 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 the approach sort of landscape that we see now in the world. Um, another one is connectivity. You know, we see it has increased significantly in many of the urban centers that we look at over the last few years. At the moment, seventy percent. It's as high as seventy percent in Latin America, um, and we expect it to be um, as high as eighty percent probably by by twenty twenty five. So again, increasing rapidly. Uh, digitization is increasing as well. The ecosystem development that we're seeing in these places is also important. We're seeing both talent coming out of improving uh, local educational institutions. We're seeing talent being repatriated, aka people that were living in Silicon Valley or New York or London that are now coming to their countries to help build startups there. And we see this PayPal mafia effect being generated around, around success stories in a lot of these markets. Like we have 99 taxis in Sao Paulo, Rappi, of course, in Bogota, or even uh, Linio in Mexico, uh, provide examples of that, Andela in Lagos. So uh, across our four cities, you see this phenomenon playing out, which is super interesting. Um, and then, of course, it's important to mention two more things. One is on the regulatory side, we're seeing 
push towards transparency and inclusion. I think that the fintech law in Mexico is a good example of how there's regulation being formally crafted around the world of fintech. Um, and even the fact that the Brazilian Central Bank reiterated and confirmed its commitment to open banking in the midst of a global pandemic, which I think says something. Um, and then lastly, capital flows. Uh, we're seeing the initial success story, especially when you take the example of Brazil, where you've seen follow-on capital come from later stage players such as General Atlantic or, of course, SoftBank. That adds another dimension to the heights right, and the scale that early stage enterprises can achieve in the world of fintech. And more than that, if you look at like Pago Seguro or Stone, which actually IPO'd um, in, in US exchanges and have been performing quite well since they did so, um, I think it validates the thesis further. Today, for example, you had Conductor, which raised the 150 million round and is um, and declares aspirations of going public in the US within the next year, arguably. So, Even Warren Buffett is investing in, in fintech in, in Latin America with participation through Stone. Exactly. And the most valuable digital bank in the world, emerging digital bank in the world, uh, New Bank is coming out of, of Latin America as exactly. well. Exactly. Built by a Colombian, by the way. <laughs> so good, good Latin in, intermix there. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah. So across, um, I think what we think about in looking at these cities is the broader, the population concentration in the broader metropolitan areas. Um, age, uh, I think, is certainly a factor. Age of the workforce, age of the population in, in these cities. Yes, absolutely. I think the best example there is actually in Lagos. Um, I believe the average age in Lagos is 25. The average age in Nigeria is 18 which is ridiculously young. Compare that to the demographics that you see in Europe, for example, or even the United States. Um, you know, Latin American populations in general are also younger. Uh, they're, you know, they're closer to 30 to 35 in average from what I've seen. Uh, but for example, if you look at Lagos as a growing urban hub in potential, you see the percentage of, middle, of people in the middle class, the percentage of urbanization, um, and the fact that it still lags behind a lot of the Latin American hubs um, it's very promising. I mean, that's where the trend is going. And I think we talked, uh, we referenced this globally distributed network of connected ecosystems. One of the questions that people would have outside looking in, I think, is the role government plays in, in these different regions. Yeah. And um, from our perspective, the role that the regulators play. Yeah. Um, how would you characterize uh, some of these ecosystems from a regulatory perspective? So a lot of these countries have have big governments um, and, and, and massive bureaucracies. Brazil, I mean, the labor code in Brazil is is, is ancient, for example, to, to give an example, right? So so it, it, is, it is interesting how, despite that reality and how backwards, for lack of better words, these governments can be in certain aspects, they are being quite proactive um, in the regulation as it comes to fintech because I think they see the massive uh, inclusion and, the mass, and they see the equalization effect that these technologies can have in a part in a disenfranchised part of their populations and i think that that's important for example brazil uh next month is going to kick off peaks right their 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 instant payment uh, uh network that they've set up right i mean i think you know after the one in india this is a very promising one there's some parallels that can be drawn but it's 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 interesting to see what will happen if we see brazil again as an example during the pandemic having used uh fintech solutions to distribute uh, distribute cash emergency payments to different people across the country digitally, that was a breakthrough. Um, so I think there's there's some very interesting uh, there's very interesting moves being made. And, and, the, and in Mexico, the fintech law is actually operating, arguably, as an example to other fintech initiatives and other fintech, sorry, regulatory initiatives across the region. 
If we look, for example, at the legislation that is being crafted in Colombia, arguably has been inspired in the 2018 uh, fintech law in Mexico. And so in general, across these regions, we're seeing in some cases relative to the U.S., a more progressive, uh, more supportive regulator from uh, the perspective of the emerging tech companies. Yeah, I think you can make that argument. Yeah. Let's, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about some of the investment themes. So we talked about yeah. when FinTech Collective started in Fund One, we were really focused on this foundational credit layer, a very, very thin layer that developed intelligence on an individual using call data, SMS text, um, geolocation, any ambient data available to start to construct a credit profile on an individual. We really felt that that was foundational in um, putting individuals on a path to social and economic mobility and, and progress. Mm -hmm. As you look across the portfolio and as we think forward, um, how do you organize and think about the themes that are most interesting and, and actionable to us? Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, I'll say them roughly and then, of course, we can dig deeper into them. But one, as you mentioned, is the credit layer for decisioning. Uh, you've, you've already touched on that. The other one is the infrastructure for digital payments. Uh, you alluded to that when we gave the example of Minka. Um, you know, data-driven consumer finance, also very important, very well exemplified by our, by our investment in Rebel um, out of Sao Paulo. Um, and lastly, of course, you know, software and automation uh, for SMEs in, in the region, which is something that both Runa in Mexico and Contabilize in Brazil are touching. And then, of course, as, as a fifth uh, pillar of, of our thesis, we have South-to-South -South opportunities, aka seeing opportunities migrate from one uh, developed market to another developing, sorry, from one developing market to another developing market. Um, and Migo, which, as you mentioned, was one of our first uh, developing market investments, is actually doing that now. Uh, going from Lagos to, to Sao Paulo in Brazil. Yeah, and Mexico, I think. And World Cover, in fact, as well, is uh, traversing yeah. Africa to, to Latin America. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about the payments infrastructure, mm -hmm. um, which is most observable in the portfolio today in Minka in Colombia and yeah. in Flutterwave in Africa. Correct. Correct. So I think, yeah, For so Minka is doing something extremely foundational. I mean, it's it's, you, it, it's creating a blockchain-based infrastructure for real-time payments in Colombia. Um, its first project is with the ACH of that country, uh, which currently has 27 financial institutions. Um, Minka already has 10 integrated into the platform, but it doesn't want to stop there. Eventually, it wants to. It, the next step in its in its progression is to also work with the so-called merchant category, aka being able to connect with different payments, uh, payment gateways, sorry, fintechs, etc., to be able to take its services to that level as well. Um, so ultimately, it is an enabler in a region where at the moment, 87% or so of transactions are still made in cash. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and electronic payments are overly expensive and take days um, in comparison to, to some to developed markets. Um, and if we look at Flutterwave, I mean, when we first made that investment, I believe the amount of digital payments in, in Africa, or at least in Nigeria, was at 3%, uh, but growing 25% year on year. So, I mean, the, the pace at which is growing in uh, geographies such as Sub-Saharan Africa, which is roughly 1 billion people, I mean, that's a massive opportunity when you think about, about the amount of merchants that can be empowered by this sort of solution. Yeah, evidenced as well over the last few months of Flutterwave bouncing back uh, mm -hmm. from the initial stages of COVID and processing seven to 800 million in transaction volume a month. Exactly. I think the other thing that um, you see across Flutterwave and some of these markets is the proliferation of point solutions and wallets. 
um, and needing having the necessity for a unifying layer uh, so that merchants can accept uh, a proliferation of forms of payment exactly. uh, and make it easier both for merchant acceptance as well um, as for issuers to support and grow the merchant side of, of their business. Exactly. Exactly. It plays to both sides. So um, payments, critical infrastructure piece. Let's talk a little bit about the consumer finance, digital banking, digital yeah. credit space. Yeah, let's do that. So I think, so for that, the, the main thing you have to remember is the, is the amount, is how concentrated assets under management are in a lot of these countries in the, in the top financial institutions. Like in Brazil, which remember is one of, you know, one of the biggest economies in the world. I mean, something like 88% of the assets under management for the, are, are in the hands of the top five banks. That percentage uh, revolves around 70% for both Mexico and Colombia, so still massive levels of concentration. That leaves millions of people underserved. Um, and when you consider you know, the rates for prime and, and subprime um, borrowers for unsecured loans are exceeding 300%, uh, that becomes a massive problem. From the in existing financial institutions. So yes. if you walk up to the equivalent of JP Morgan or Citi mm -hmm. in Brazil and look for an unsecured extension of credit, you might be paying 300% yes. interest per year. Mm -hmm. So we have three positions in Latin America across Rebel, uh, Fundadora, and Oyster. Mm -hmm. um, when people think of, who know of this space think about Latin America, they think about Nubank. Draw some differentiation if you can from mm -hmm. the plays that we're making and and the existing uh emerging star uh in Nubank. Yeah. So I think so let's begin with Fondeadora. So Fondeadora um fundamentally I think it, it's its approach is very savings focused from the start. A big reason why is because Fondeadora is finalizing the acquisition of Asofipo, which actually is going to allow it to attract payroll payroll dollars. Um, and ultimately, eventually, be able to diversify its income from only interchange to also being able to pay yield on deposits. So I think that takes it to a different dimension. Um, and I think Fondeadora actually has looked north for inspiration and is really adapting the the playbook, arguably, of Cash App as far as the P2P component and the virality that is that stems from that um, in a way to acquire and grow its its user base. Um, and of course, that is all fundamented on what is a simple, very elegant product-driven decision, um, as you see when you see the Fondeadora card, and, and we're very excited for the iterations to come in the future. Um, so that, that's for Fondeadora. Um, and yeah, I mean, Nubank is certainly going to try to compete in Mexico. Um, despite all the resources, it still remains to be seen to what extent they can do that successfully, yeah. uh, which, you know, which raises an important theme, which is the fact that Latin America, at the end of the day, Brazil is a very different place to countries in, Hispan in Spanish-speaking Latin America. Um, and that's something I think sometimes people that are outside of the region forget or, or undermine. Um, sure. And the other one is Oyster. Oyster, at the end of the day, I mean, Oyster wants to be a holistic financial institution for SMEs in the region. Um, so really, that, that is its approach. And I mean, that, I think that's a good feeder actually into one of our other themes, which is software and, and automation for SMEs. Um, but the reason I say that is because we have to understand how important SMEs are for the region. There's something like 17 million SMEs in Latin America with Brazil and uh, and Mexico accounting for over half of the total. But I mean, really, it accounts for, I think, something like 70% of formal employment in the region. Um, in Mexico, it accounts for over half of the GDP. Um, and yet, unfortunately, and I'm saying that because that's the initial geography that Oyster is focused in, unfortunately, about two-thirds of them are significantly underbanked, if not unbanked. And I think they, the SMEs in Mexico account for something like 15% of outstanding credit. 
So if you look at proportionally their importance to the economy of the country, but you look at their banking penetration and how they're being serviced, there's a massive disparity that needs to be addressed. A little bit of a sidebar, coming back to software for small and, and mid-sized businesses. Talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about Runa and Conta. Yeah, exactly. So I think, so let's begin maybe with Conta down in Brazil, right? So it's it's really a, a SaaS play uh, to, to facilitate um, accounting services and, and, and tax payments. I mean, if we look at <laughs> that the onerous requirements that are imposed both at the state and federal level um, in Brazil for SMEs, it really is quite something. Um, as I mentioned, there's over 6 million SMEs in Brazil, and they have to pay um, an estimated amount of $8 billion for accounting services annually. Um, so that's quite a bit, right? It seems we- upside down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so so what? So Contabilize is really trying to make that make that easier for them. Um, and again, you know, we were speaking about the importance of SMEs to the Mexican economy. Well, Runa is often the third software installed um, by SMEs that that you know that that work with the company. So again, that shows really the lack of digital penetration um, in the backbone of these economies. And I mean, when COVID first hit, of course, people were very concerned about the impact it was going to have on on SMEs, and rightfully so. Of course, a lot of them, you know, because of cash constraints. Uh, we're not expected to survive for long, but it doesn't change the reality that the backbones of these economies will become, will continue to be the SMEs. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't change overnight. And when you're, you know, when 90, over 90% of the companies in Mexico are SMEs, that's just, that's just the way it is. So social and economic mobility, um, social progress for individuals and um, creating significantly greater efficiency, in some cases, access to credit and capital and transactions for businesses, which, uh, as you pointed out, are the backbone for the economies in most of these countries. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about our investment approach and yeah. uh, the considerations that are incremental to sort of um, FinTech Collective's normal um, uh, investment conversation. Of course. So there's a couple of things. Um, the first one, of course, is the macro landscape. Um, you know, you have to consider volatility and, you know, what, what, the currency, like the susceptibility that some of these countries have to FX devaluations, right, which at the beginning of COVID proved to be, uh, unfortunately, an important consideration. So, you know, the the potential volatility of revenue, if, if made in local currency, is something we have to take into account. Um, of course, the regulatory environment, again, you know, as, as we said, the regulators in these countries are powerful. So a lot of them are building the regulation as fintech evolves. So the considerations that that can have, both positively or negatively, is something we evaluate. Um, of course, you know connectivity outside of the local ecosystem, because when we think about greater scale, the ability of these companies to both recruit foreign talent or access it and sources of funding, um, both equity and debt in primarily the United States, also Europe potentially, um, is an important consideration for us. Um, you know, in, in, in the success that a company can have. Um, and lastly, you know, which builds on that is sort of like how mature is the local ecosystem and what are the and, and what are the sources, the potential exit opportunities for these companies? You know, how how prepared are the local capital markets to be able to sustain that or what is the access they can have to and the interest in foreign capital markets for these sort of, of companies? Carlos, incredible conversation. Um, incredibly uh, diverse and exciting group of companies that are definitively making a, a generational impact on these countries. So look forward to continuing to, to follow uh, your activities, our activities in the region. Thanks, Carlos. Thank you, Brooks. I appreciate it.